When two great drivers duel for the Formula One World Championship, things can get messy. In the late 1980s and early 90s, long before Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton's battle, F1's fiercest fight was between Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost. Senna is trying to go through on the inside and it's happened immediately. This is amazing. Senna goes off at the first corner. But what has happened to Prost? He has gone off too. Yes, and that makes Ayrton Senna world champion this year. With Prost not finishing the race quite clearly, he's out of his car, stuck in the gravel pit. That, I'm afraid to say, is the end of this year's Drivers' World Championship. You can't talk about our story when we were racing together without understanding what happened after I retired. All the discussion we had together with Ayrton during the winter before his accident. And then you, if you understand that, you understand why he was like this, what was his motivation. As we build up to the first episode of Beyond the Grid Season 5, we're revisiting a fascinating conversation about rivalries, respect and racing with a four-time F1 world champion. Hi everyone, I'm Tom Clarkson. Now I've interviewed 16 Formula One world champions on this podcast and this chat with Alain Prost is one of my favourites. Alan and I sat down together at the 2018 Singapore Grand Prix and we covered a lot, good times and struggles, his rise to the top of the sport and what made the late 80s and early 90s such an exciting era of Formula One. Grids back then were dominated by dazzling drivers, Nicky Lauda, Nigel Mansell, Nelson Piquet and of course, Ayrton Senna. Prost raced them all, but with Senna, the rivalry reached new heights. They clashed hard on and off track as teammates at McLaren and during Prost time at Ferrari. You'll hear Alan remember remarkable phone conversations he had with Senna years after those clashes. As he explains, those phone calls finally helped him understand Ayrton as a person. But we started by talking about the early years of Alan's F1 career and the world titles he narrowly missed out on. Welcome to Beyond the Grid. Thank you for your time. Now, this is getting a bit ridiculous because you still look as lean and fit as you were when you were racing, and that was 25 years ago. Now, is there any truth in what I've just said? Uh, yeah, even uh, even worse than that. I'm, uh, I'm carry, carry less weight, and uh, I, I mean, I'm as fit. For sure, the body is okay. I mean, the head, you can see that is a few few more years. <laughs> uh, but I'm quite pleased about that. But it's a, it's a challenge, you know. It's becoming more and more difficult. But Alan, just tell us, how do you keep in, in, in good shape? So so you're, you're lighter than you were as a driver. Is it predominantly cycling? Uh, yeah, cycling, the food and uh, being healthy. I mean, the sport and, uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, the, 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 my life is like this, but it's not... Uh, you have to be careful when you're talking about wet today because there's a lot of people are concerned about their wet and whatever. But for me, it's very different. I'm not trying to, to lose wet. You know, it's, uh, it's in my, uh, all, all my life I've been around the sport. I've been at uh, the football school at eight years old. And uh, if I don't do a sport, if I don't do physical training, 
I really don't feel well. You know, for example, we were talking now in Singapore. I'm going to have three days without any sport because I don't want to go to the gymnasium. I'm going. I, I'm going to do some exercise in my room, stretching and uh, a little bit. I mean, exercises. But it's my life. I don't try to find something. You know, I just want to be healthy. I just want to be uh, okay with my body. Alan, I've got this theory that you should be a nine-time world champion. I agree with you. <laughs> because actually, <laughs> there were five championships yeah. that you came incredibly close to. Yeah. 83, well, actually 82, if the thing hadn't no, kept breaking eight, down. 82 was maybe, I mean, 82, 83 was, uh, was the, the worst years, obviously, because 82, you know, it's uh, more than 30 years later, you can say exactly what, what happened. In 82, we had... Uh, a failure. I had nine times in the year the same failure when I was uh, almost leading the race, yeah, almost every, every time. And uh, that was the small uh, electrical engine that uh, was cost, I don't know, maybe 30 euros today or 50 euros, whatever. But it was part of a company uh, linked with Renault. We could have changed that. That maybe nobody could, uh, on the English uh, philosophy, you would have changed that and then say nothing to anybody and we would, not, would have been world champion. But because it was a company linked to Renault, we were not allowed to do that. That when I was talking about management, that is part of the decision you could, you could make at the time. And we have not been world champion. That was really a big, uh, you know, disappointment. So was 82 almost 80. more frustrating than 83, bizarrely? Where you missed out in 83 by yes, two Yes, yes, I, I tell you why. Because 82, it is really a decision of the management we have made uh, us not world champion. 83, it's another decision of the management, but it was, uh, you know, the, 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 the situation with the fuel. We had two things. We had the turbo, you know, so we had exactly the same problem than 82. We were with Kakaka, uh, uh, if I remember, and we could have go uh, go to Garrett. It was uh, because uh, we were limited. Uh, uh, you know, during the season we were putting more boost and more 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 power, but the turbo could not accept that. And uh, then, in fact, we had a reliability problem, but they did not want to did not want to to do it. They did not want to change. That is one uh, one aspect. And the second one, which was the worst, we knew about the fuel. It has been controlled. It has been uh, through the you know the health people and other other people. We knew that it was not uh, it was not okay, but Renault at the end they did not want to to um, to protest at the end because maybe because it was another constructor. You know at the time it was different, and only the the um, the, the, um, the team by itself can protest. I mean I could not protest as a driver. You know it's not. Uh, so that was really uh, really disappointing because it's being a champion is. Uh, you know we were looking of uh, of that and uh, and Renault as a team, at the time has never been world champion has never been successful after. So how, and then so, so you leave Renault at the end of eighty three. Yep. You then go to McLaren, where you miss out by half a point to Nicky Lauda. Yeah. How frustrated were you at this point in your career? Because you were the fastest driver in Formula One, and yet, for whatever reason, you couldn't get that championship. Where, talk me through that winter of 84, 85. Yeah, in fact, it's another season, another, another ambience. Uh, you know, when I, the funny thing, when I came to McLaren, Nikki has a contract of being number one. <laughs> 
and uh, I signed a contract being number two. <laughs> and you were yeah. happy to sign that? I was happy to sign because, <laughs> I mean, he, he was number one, but it was not a number one like today, where if he was uh, behind me, uh, I, I had to, to leave uh, the way, you know, that did not work like this. But when we were testing, he, was, he wanted to test the development. If, he was, if we had only one front wing, for example, he would have uh, the front wing for him. I have accepted that. And in fact, I never felt uh, a, big, uh, a big problem. But we had such a good year <laughs> all together, uh, you know, with the team, with Nikki, that at the end, when you lose, but losing again was, uh, and also for half a point, um, I, I did a good season. I had more problems, maybe more failure. Uh, I did, uh, I did mistakes too because I was fighting a lot against uh, Nelson, and uh, Nikki was always uh, behind, but got got the points. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know what was the the most difficult part of it? Uh, if you ask me, winter eighty four, eighty five. Is uh, I was reading sometimes newspapers, which I n never do for a long time, but uh, and I was reading Alain Prost will never be world champion, you know, because I miss so much, you know, uh, championships that uh, so I said to myself, I have I have to consider this 85 year as a, as a, as my year. I, I have to do everything to be to be world champion, even if I have to secure uh, fourth or fifth position, I have to work differently. You know? and, and did you work differently? Yeah, I, I worked differently. I worked differently. I wanted, uh, my objective was to be a world champion. I, have, uh, uh, I was very careful, you know, but, uh, but, but, but you know, uh, we had some, uh, I had some races. Um, was it in 85 when uh, I spun, you know, in the straight in Estoril uh, when it was wet? Then I had the, the, you know, I was running 600 grams below in Imola after my win, so I lost the win. So I, I'm beginning of 85. I said to myself, "Okay, this is going to be another <laughs> another year." It was really uh, really difficult, but I got it. You know, you say you did things differently. Was that a sort of from the moment you turned up at a racetrack, your focus was on Sunday more yeah. than Saturday? Y yes, in fact, uh, that started with with Nikki in '84 uh, because. Uh, I remember, you know, I was also very close to Pierre Dupasquier, you know, the person from Michelin, where I was working a lot with him. By the way, it's it's um, him and uh, and around around them that they call me the professor because of this. Uh, Pierre Dupasquier. Yeah, in fact, it was the the person uh, in charge of the communication of the Michelin racing department. They called me the professor because at one race, I think it was '82 or '83, where I I have decided to put the the hard tire on the left and soft tire on the right, and he said, "Oh no, no, it's not going to work. You can't do that." I said, let, "Let me do. I am I am doing all the preparation of the car for the race for." For that, you know, so let me do. You will see uh, for sure. I, I know that's going to work, and, uh, and then I I won the race, and uh, that's where they call me the first time the professor. But that's a great anyway. story. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in fact, I remember him. I don't know exactly which year he said. You know, you have to. You cannot drive the car at 100% all the time. When he was saying 100% all the time, that means not only races, but qualifying or. Free practice, but also private test during the week 
I was driving at 100%. But that was in 80s, 82, maybe 83. And then when I arrived with Nikki, Nikki was slower than me. There was no doubt about it. But at the end, he was world champion for any kind of reason. But sometimes he was starting eight, nine, ten. I was on first row, you know. But he was still, uh, still able in the rest to be, to be competitive. And uh, I really changed my philosophy a little bit. It's not only because of Ayrton. When Ayrton came, I, I went even more to this philosophy. But I was, uh, I was more like this because it's. Uh, at the end of the day, you only got points uh, on the race, not in qualifying. Those 80s, I mean, it, it, people hark back to those 80s and at the 80s and say, you know, it was a halcyon era, a brilliant era of Formula One. Mm. Would you agree with that? The cars, the drivers? Yes, for sure. Is uh, because, uh, first of all, we were all learning. We were all at the beginning of a, of a story. Formula One before the 80s was not exactly the same, no? And uh, we, we had, uh, I mean, different races, we had different teams, different constructors, but uh, uh, most important is uh, the, the technical regulation. We had the freedom, you know? We, we had, uh, you know, they have to find the, the way, you know, to adjust between the eight. Can you remember that w w at one stage we had eight cylinder, ten cylinder, three type of twelve cylinder Ferrari, Lamborghini, Alfa Romeo, and uh, and turbo engine all together. You know, so it was really unbelievable. But Eclectic. Yeah, yeah. And the good thing is that sometimes when, if you had the turbo car in the early eighties. You go to Monaco, you go to uh, some places like Montreal, you knew that it would be very difficult and struggling, but some, if you go to Monza or to uh, Silverstone, you, have, you had a chance to win, you know, and uh, it, it was a different philosophy. The drivers, they had uh, an unbelievable personalities and, and charisms, you know, because I think they were coming from a different level, different age also, you know. Uh, when you if you arrive at uh, 25, 27 in Formula One, he was uh, already, I mean, young, <laughs> you know, at the time. So also we had uh, uh, to to arrive to Formula One. We had to do different things, you know, and uh, by by uh, uh, ourselves, you know. So it, it was a different, and we had fun, you know, and we had a lot of fun, and we had a lot of risk, a lot of accident, and as I. Th I really thought a lot that if we had so much fun, it's also because it was so dangerous and we were almost like family and uh, all together. We, we, we had some stories like everywhere, like in a, in a big family, but most of the time we were really friends. You talk about danger. How much did you worry about danger and hurting yourself? And I mean... How much damage did you do to yourself in a racing car in your career? I had a, I had a lot of accidents in the 80s with McLaren, the first year at McLaren. Uh, I had nine mechanical failures on the car during the year. Uh, two or three times I went in the, the hospital, uh, especially in private tests. I remember in Donington, I was really, uh, I was really bad. And uh, I took also the wheel on my, my face in uh, Watkins Glen, the last race in the 80s. That's where I decided to, to stop. I, I hurt myself. But the first or second race in KLME, 
I broke I broke my scaphoid, and that's where I realized that uh, you can hurt yourself in uh, motor racing, because before you do not have any f- physical pain, you don't know that can happen. I remember I was really close to Gilles Villeneuve at the time, eighty 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 one, before his accident, and uh, it was really a, a strange guy talking about the risk uh, he was so so nice he's one of my best uh, you know friend in, in Formula One at the time but he was keeping saying to me you know and I, we, we can't hurt ourselves in Formula One it's not possible he has an unbelievable accident I don't remember I, I don't know if you remember when he went over you know the crowd I don't know where it was and he never hurt himself you know he never he never felt the pain and he thought that he you cannot hurt you, yourself. But, you know, the, these two things, you know, myself, I hurt myself. I had uh, f- um, a lot of bad accidents with uh, mechanical failures. And on the other side, I've seen uh, good friends and very close uh, close guys uh, uh, being killed or being very badly injured. So from the beginning, I really took care about the, the safety. And when you're asking the question about... Uh, you know, preparing the car for the race. Uh, that was also a sort of philosophy that trying to get less risk possible, put everything that you can on your side. Uh, you know, I give you an example. At the time, we had the T car. T car. If you ask me why I did not do 24 hours of Le Mans at the time, it's because you had to share your car. And I remember I had a good friend of, uh, of mine also. He was my manager the first year, Jean-Louis Lafosse. He has died in uh, 24 hours of Le Mans because he took the car at one stage and uh, his teammate was uh, going over the curbs all the time. And then he, he had a suspension failure in the straight. And uh, it's very difficult to rely on everything and everybody in this business, you know. And when we had the T-car, I can say that uh, I had some drivers where I was very confident with. For example, Nicky, when we had the T-car, I didn't have any problem. I knew that he had the same philosophy. I knew that he, for example, if he goes over a curb in a very bad way, he's going to ask the engineers or the technical director, okay, can you check that, can you check that, or replace the suspension or whatever. He has the same philosophy. Not the, all drivers have the same thing. So you have to put everything in your on your side. And that's why the... If you minimize the risk, that does not say that uh, you have no chance to hurt yourself, but you you put, again, everything on your side. Now, the drivers in the 80s, you, yep. you've talked a little bit about the, the camaraderie among you. Piquet, Mansell, Rosberg and Lauda. Can you put them in speed order in your That's opinion? my teammates, yeah? Yeah. Piquet? Um, no, Piquet was no, no, Pique Pique. wasn't a teammate, was yeah. it? No, but they were the sort of the you were the, yeah. the main guys. Uh, of the Piquet, era. Mansell, Piquet, Mansell, Rosberg, and Lauder. Uh, the quickest on one lap would be Nigel, I think. Uh, and uh, when I had the KK, I don't think he was in his best year in '86. Very difficult to judge. I think when he saw in uh, the beginning of the year, I don't. I don't know if he has not if he had not decided already to retire at the end of '86. Very difficult to judge, but if you compare Nigel Piquet and Lauda, uh, Nigel was maybe the quickest, 
but uh, Piquet and Lauda are much more difficult to beat uh, if you're talking about the championship. They are, they are much, much more complete drivers, you know. In Lauda and Piquet. Lauda and Piquet, for sure. Well, you, you still managed to get Mansell to retire. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's my fault, but uh, it's more his fault. <laughs> what is it about you forcing your teammates into retirement? Rosberg, yeah. a season with Alain Prost, I'm gone. Lauda, the same. Mansell announces his yeah, retirement. I mean, for six. sure, uh, with uh, Keke, Keke was one of my best teammates. He was really a friend too. He was really, really good. But for sure, yeah, he did not... Uh, maybe he did not get along also with the McLaren philosophy and... Uh, the philosophy also to set up the car, uh, but it was uh, it, it was good. Uh, Nigel is different. Is uh, is Nigel? Is uh, I never understood why he was, for example, was jealous because I was uh, speaking Italian. And but if you start like this, you cannot <laughs> cannot. You know, with Nicky, we never had any problem. Never, never any argument in two years. Your rivalry with Senna, it's well documented. You've been asked a lot of questions about it. Did you have the power of veto at McLaren? Could you have prevented him coming to the team? More than the power of veto. I've asked Ron and Honda to put Ayrton in the team. You asked them? Yeah. Yeah, because it was very simple. We were in Japan in a meeting in the hotel room. And uh, that was already the year before when we started the negotiation. We had a bit, small chance to get the engine for 87, but we missed it. And uh, they wanted to put Prost and Piquet in the future. And I said, why Nelson? And Nelson was a good friend also. You know, we were getting very well. I, and Ayrton, I did not know him. I only met him once in, uh, in Germany for Mercedes, uh, you know, race in uh, Nürburgring. And uh, I said, why do you want to take the, the Nelson? You know, we have a young guy, he's very talented driver. We need to have the best for the team. And that started like this. I had the veto. I could say no, for sure. Yeah. So, given everything that happened, do you regret? I never regret uh, anything. Because when you do things, uh, you, do, you, do, you do it when, because you feel that is the best. At the time, I can regret that uh, the, the, the relation in the McLaren family have changed because of that. But... You need to remember, and you need to ask Ron, from 84, the day I went to McLaren to 88, when Ayrton came, we always took decisions all together. When, when Ron had to find a sponsor, I was going with Ron to the meetings. You know? We were doing everything all together. I was really part, not of the family, I was really like part of, like, like a shareholder, you know. So we were taking the, 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 the decision for the, for the good of the, of the teams, you know, to make it better. So that's why I've, I've said that. I said because it was better for the team. I did not think about myself first, you know. I never, never ask any position of a number one driver in a team for all my career. I've never been a number, number one. And I've even been number two <laughs> at least once, you know. <laughs> so uh, I, I was not in this in this philosophy. In the modern Formula One, Ayrton started to to ask for number one uh, uh, situation. Obviously, we had Michael, and then now we have Lewis and and Sebastian. We do not, we should not hide that, you know. It's part of the. And uh, on the other side, there's some teams like Ferrari, for example. If I was 
a number one on the paper in 1990, I wouldn't have been world champion. You know? So you have to understand that sometimes in different teams, in different situations, being a number one, having a number one and a number two in team can, can work very well. So you invited Ayrton in. Obviously, we know what happened. Are you pleased that you had that rivalry? Would you say it's the defining moment of your career? No, it's, a, it's, it's always the, on the sportive side. Uh, I think it's good. Uh, on the human side, it was very, very difficult for me because uh, Ayrton was supported, uh, I mean, 99% by the media, by the people, not, not inside the team. Inside the team, it was, uh, was more Honda and Ron, because Ron has always, uh, uh, what we call, uh, protégé chouchou. I mean, he, he always take a driver under himself. Did you, did you feel Ron's loyalty shift away from you towards yes, that? Yes, sure. But I felt... I felt a little bit when I was uh, with Nikki, you know, from the beginning to the end. I felt that also in my favor with uh, Keke. I felt that uh, with Stefan. So that's the first time I felt the, <laughs> the opposite. But uh, if, you, if you had the, the relation I had with, uh, with Ron and Mansour and with the team in the past, you understand also his philosophy. You understand his motivation to build the best uh, racing team. So sometimes you can uh, forgive, forgive him, you know, because he, wa he, he was thinking about the future, or thinking about the relation with Honda, and uh, it's always in his uh, in his temper, you know, in his uh, in his philosophy. So I had no problem. But on the human side, I promise you that was really really tough. But at the end, we made the history. We we had a, we had a, uh, such a, a period where I mean almost not one day or one week that somebody do not, does not talk to me about that. So we realize more now, you know, twenty thirty years later, what we have done. Now, Emila eighty nine seems yeah. to have been the catalyst yeah. when the agreement about turn one yeah. was mm. um, broken, but. Why did it, why did things escalate so quickly after that? Oh, it's very simple. Uh, the, the story is when the, when that happened in Imola, uh, we had some people like John Ogan, for example. He was uh, he was there in the motorhome when we met the, the agreement. The agreement we have done this kind of agreement two, three, four times already in uh, because we we wanted to rest together. We did not want to, you know, to to have an accident the first corner. That's what he was saying, but uh, <laughs> sometimes it was very close. But we did not want to have a Ferrari, for example, over, overtaking us uh, in the first corner. So it was a, a normal situation. After after Imola, it was so bad, and John Hogan was also a little bit upset about about Just this to situation. Just clarify to people listening, John Hogan was in charge of Philip, he, the Philip Morris, Morris money. Influence. Yeah, exactly. And he was the only person in, in the motorhome when we met, uh, we met the agreement. And then uh, Ron has decided to, because we were testing the week after in, uh, in Scotland, in Pembury, I think. Wales. Uh, in Wales? Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. I don't know. Scotland would be not in, killed. In okay. In Pembury. <laughs> and then uh, Ron has decided to, to come and to to meet Anton and myself to talk about that. 
and that was really, really strange, you know, because uh, uh, Ayrton started to say, you know, it's, it's not me has broken the deal, it's Alain. He overtook me before the first corner. And one said, but please, uh, uh, Ayrton, at, at the time, that was 30 years <laughs> ago, we put the, the tap, you know, the big tap in record, and then uh, they said, you know, it's, I don't know, but hundreds of millions of persons have, have seen what happened. And then, I said that today, but we have to understand that Ayrton did not feel well, you know, almost crying. And I had, uh, I talked to one journalist, a French journalist, uh, about this story, but... Johnny like Reeves. Johnny Reeves, yeah. From L'Equipe. From L'Equipe. Like off, you know, we were talking very often off. That, that was the time from 80 to 89 you were able to speak off with some journalists. After 89, I almost did not say, I mean, very, very little off things with some journalists or some off the record, Mm -hmm. because it did not work. And then Johnny made an article of that, and he was so upset that he didn't talk to me anymore during this year. And that that is the reason of the the problem. I mean, do do you regret that you couldn't just sit down and sort it out? Or was it just too no, difficult? No, it was too difficult because we, we, uh, you, you, you can't talk about... You have to listen what I'm going to say because that's why I'm very upset about the film Sena. Because you can't talk about this story, that means our story, when we were racing all together, together without understanding what happened after I retired, all the discussion we had together with Ayrton during the winter before his accident. And then you, if you understand that, you understand why he was like this, what, what was his motivation. And obviously he's a, he's a strange person. If you ask me, you know, all the names you have uh, uh, said before, Mansell, Piquet, Osberg, uh, Damon, all these guys, you know, they are all different, you know, but Ayrton is special, he's very special. So you cannot, I am very, I'd say, Cartesian, you know, uh, so it's very, very easy to to read, you know, what I think, what I say, and uh, Ayrton is different. So you cannot, you cannot judge, you cannot sit and, and talk, you know, I have invited him once in my house in Switzerland when we were in the Geneva Motor Show. He did not talk. He did not say one word, you know. He was sleeping in, in, uh, in a canopy after, after lunch. And uh, I went to, to the Geneva Motor Show and I talked to the Hyundai guy who was a friend of mine. I said, I, I explained to him what happened. He said, no, no, uh, don't worry. He told me that he has done that. I said, yeah, why? Because he did not want to talk to you because he does not want to become a friend. He has to fight against yourself. He doesn't want to become a friend, doesn't want to become close. It is very difficult when you have this kind of... But you understand everything. But you understand after. You always understand after in, in life, <laughs> you know? And it's, uh, that's why I don't regret. He was like this, I was like this. We had a different personality, different culture, different education, uh, different way of uh, driving, different way of set up, set up the car, whatever. We were all different. But that is that is part of our success. That's why. So, so that winter before he died, when you said you had lots of conversations, do you feel? 
I don't know whether you're prepared to share anything that you'd spoke about, but do you feel that was when you started to understand Senna? Yeah. Was that winter? Sure, because he started to talk. The, the, Did you talk about 88, 89, 90? He talked about everything to me. He was calling me, let's say, one or twice per week, and we had a long conversation. He wanted me to come back. When I tested the McLaren uh, uh, Peugeot engine, I said, oh, you should come back. I was laughing on the phone. They said, yeah, we're going to come back and you're going to be uh, one lap ahead of me and uh, why you want me to do that? I was explaining to me all, all the things, you know. I, I, understood, uh, I understood a lot on the, on the human side, which was the most, uh, the most important. I've heard people say that you became friends. Is, is that true? I, 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 I don't know if you, can, if you can say friends, but when, when a guy like him change completely his mind. When we were on the podium in Adelaide, you know, when we were together on the first March of podium, we had pictures and then we went to the press conference. He changed completely the way he, he was with, with me. And from this day, I mean, a few days later, he called me. He was the first one to call me. And then he kept going during the winter. But we, uh, I can call that a friend because when you, when you start to talk about you, professional life, but personal life, your worries, your, your problems, what he has done during the winter before his accident. And I always said, I know something that I will never share to anybody. I never, I never talk to anybody, even person of my family, because that was a secret. So I can say, yes, in this way, he is a friend. But I never met him very often after you know, after his, uh, his accident. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we share a lot of things. He was not very happy about his life, uh, I mean, even even at, uh, inside his team, and uh, he was worried about, uh, you know, the, the, the Benetton not being uh, uh, conformed, correct, and uh, about safety, that before he was not talking very much about safety. Uh, but yeah, he had, he had a lot of things that... Uh, He, he became a, a sort of, a, a, not weak, but a, a different person. He was... Without you? Yeah, because he said to me, I cannot be motivated by these guys. He was telling me some names. I cannot be motivated by these guys. And then I have, uh, he had a lot of... Uh, all the, What was his strength before was really like a sort of weakness, but he was still quick, still uh, good. No problem about that, but he was completely different. Yeah. Do you think he enjoyed Formula One, or was it the whole process for him was just too intense? I think the whole process was too intense because he wanted to, to beat me. His first motivation was, I was a target. I was talking to you before about the target, you know, in life. You, you, when you have a target, maybe the target was not the correct one, but... Uh, You know, he was for sure maybe one of the best of the world, you know, anyway. But uh, when he lost his motivation, he lost his target, uh, he lost the goal, he, he, had, he had to find a new goal. Being another time world champion is, was not enough. That's what I felt. And he had to find a, a goal also in his private life. And uh, everything was confused at the time. He, he went from a McLaren family to a Williams environment, which is not the same, not easy, especially also for a South American guy. And uh, everything was 
you know, almost uh, changed his, uh, his mind and his life during, the, during one winter. Did he ever talk to you about retirement or...? Retirement? For him to retire? No, 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 we did not talk, uh, did not talk okay. about that. No. Now, back to you, Williams. It's interesting to hear you say that Williams is a different environment. Yep. Um, to McLaren, let's compare the two English teams. How, how different was it and why do you think it was different? I think it's a uh, it's an English team. So I remember when I went to Williams, it's, uh, it gives you a you know it's a, it's a racing team, you know. Yeah. But uh, the human side is is really <laughs> at the second. Uh, it's behind the door if you want, you know. Yeah. Patrick and is Frank that, are quite hard, right? Yeah, but I I love them. I love them. They are they are racers, you know. I, I really love Patrick. He was I had a good relation with him. Good good uh, discussion, technical side and whatever. But it's uh, you you miss something. You you can feel that you are you are an employee, and uh, it's it's different. It is very different. Yeah. And and just a quick word on Damon. Um, it was his first season. Yeah. Um, I think he won three races. Yep. How quick? Was Damon that year, or were you not bringing your A game? Oh, was a, it was a, it was very very uh, strange. In fact, because Damon was new, I mean new, he was he was not new in Formula One, and he was new, uh, especially uh, knowing the car because he has done a lot of tests with the active suspension, and it's not a secret that I always said I did not like this car. I did not like the active suspension car. <laughs> That was, what, what lack of feel? I, I was I had no feeling. I did not like to drive with the, with the, um, assistance on the brakes and the steering and the, you know the. I did not like the fact that I could not set up the car. I wanted to because it was Paddy at the time. He had to put you know bring the computer Paddy and yeah. said uh, I did not like the car. You know and uh, uh, and and. Uh, Damon has done a lot of tests with that, and obviously he was he was well prepared, and uh, he didn't have the same problem. And Damon was much faster than I thought, you know, much better. Especially some tracks where I was really uh, difficult for me and struggling sometimes because uh, maybe because of the you know the car by itself. Uh, when we uh, at the end of the season when I retired and, and then we had. Uh, we have done some tests together in September, October in Estoril with the new regulation without the active suspension. Pff, I love the car. Really? I have done the, the best time of the test and easy and a lot, uh, you know, ahead of everybody. And I was really, but shit, you know, this, this car is much better for, for me anyway. But Damon, is, uh, Damon was a good driver. I was uh, underestimated in my opinion. So you love the passive, let's call yep. it the passive yep. Williams. Yep. I mean, why not race it in 94? I mean, I've decided to stop anyway before. Right. I have decided to stop in, in August. It went slowly during this, uh, this, this 93 season, so there was no, no question. And when I have tested the, the McLaren, uh, because Ron, Ron wanted to, Ron came to me in my room the day, the evening, after I have uh, announced that my retirement. Where did you do that? In Estoril, in Estoril 93. Okay. And he Gold said Gold. to me, Alain, I know why you do that. I know you, you, I know what you're doing, so 
you can't stop like this. You have to. So he made an offer to me. Uh, we dis- we discussed during the winter, and we had a contract. And uh, for ninety four, for ninety four and, and beyond. That was obviously the best contract I would have never done financially from far. You know, and uh, I said, okay, we we signed the contract, but. Uh, I said, also, I want you to help me for the development of the car, and you tell me what you think. We have done a, a three days contract for Estoril. And during, after these three days, I could sign the contract, the official contract, to stay or not. And after one day and a half, I said to him, okay, don't, uh, don't wait for the last, uh, I'm, I'm doing the three days, cause, uh, but uh, I'm not going to do it. You know, I, I, in fact, I, that was good for me to, to drive again, to see if I wanted to do it or not. Uh, obviously, the car was not very competitive, and the engine was not very competitive, so I could not win again. And also the fact that uh, I had to, uh, I wanted to, to change, you know. And, uh, I was more disappointed by the, the environment of Formula One, and not by the driving or not driving, you know. Driving is, uh, is my life, and uh, working in the team, and. Uh, I've, uh, I've done that also in 95, 96 at McLaren. I was still driving, testing, working in the team, really beside, beside Ron as we were doing in the, in the past. We have done some very good things uh, together. So that was, you know, part of the, my life, you know, being experiences. But sometimes when you have decided something, okay, you can see, okay, I've done it right or not, but it was re- really the right decision. Did you miss driving? Do you miss driving now? No, no, I don't miss driving at all. You know, when I had the opportunity to drive my old cars, I'm happy to see what it was. I mean, depending the condition, depending the cars, but I drove also some modern cars in the recently in the last few years, but I don't have uh, the same fun anywhere at all. Mm. Final thoughts. Brilliant, brilliant racing career, 51 wins. Four championships should have been nine. We've established <laughs> that. <laughs> but Alain, why uh, Prost Grand Prix? Yeah. What was the lure of of doing that? You, you'd had such a great driving career to then suddenly go and get a proper job. <laughs> yeah, uh, having uh, the job or the, the working for me, or if you have a, a target again, if you have a, a goal, a challenge is uh, is not a problem. I'm, I'm still ready today to work uh, if, if I'm motivated, if I find the motivation to work uh, 15 hours per day is not, is not a problem. It is absolutely not a problem. The, the challenge with the uh, Prost Grand Prix was uh, it's a bit strange because it was, it was more like a political game also in, in France at the time. You know? We had the Ligier team owned by Flavio. It was a big chance that this team could disappear completely. I've been approached at the time by the, the French president, Jacques Chirac. And uh, Peugeot was with Jordan and they, want, they wanted to stop Formula One also. So in fact, we had in France a big chance that Formula One would not uh, would disappear completely. And Renault was not there at the time. No. So I've done that because I had the opportunity to do it, obviously, in a good way. Uh, that was a good way at the beginning. <laughs> uh, I will explain to you. Uh, and it was also, you know, a French team. A um, little bit like, okay, Formula One gave me a lot. And I need, I need to give also something on the other side. 
that was really uh, naive in a way, you know, uh, because we had uh, the first years of uh, Canal Plus sign a new deal for the TV broadcast. So I was supposed to have Canal Plus for a big, big amount of money. We were having Peugeot, free engine, plus maybe some money, plus uh, the fuel uh, supplier, plus we had, let's say, everything. But, but we had a French, uh, you know, typical uh, political game uh, in the middle of a discussion where uh, where uh, the French president lost the majority, you know, and then everything disappeared. The deal with Canal Plus became half less, uh, the same with uh, Total, and Peugeot, I had to pay for the engine. You know, that started like this. So I did what not, year was that? That was 97, at the beginning right. of the year. Yeah. In fact, I've signed, I still signed the contract, because two days before signing the contract, I said to the French president, I don't want to do it anymore because it's not, it's not what I thought and uh, we are going nowhere. He said, please do it for France. We will help you later on. And then I've never been helped, you know, in a way. Uh, that is, the, let's say, the political aspect of the... This country is always like this, you know, and, and you, need, you need to have the support in the political game, otherwise it's very difficult. But when I realize that uh, it's a company, it's not a French, a French Formula One team, you know, my business, 90% of my time was for the political game, for the, you know, the... the uh, all the controls, what you have, the tax control or whatever, administration. And, but then you realize, one day I sit with Ron, I said, please, Ron, tell me how much you pay all the employees, how many employees you have, and tell me how much you pay. You know, he had at the time 600 people, was much less than, than today, 600 people or even more, say 700. I had 200, even 190, exactly. So we, he had more than the double, and we had exactly the same... Uh, money spent because of the social charge, charges, all, all the, these things. That, it is impossible, in fact, you know, to, to run a team in France today if you fight against English team, and uh, it, is, it is impossible. So, slowly I realized that, but then I had to, it was, uh, I made some fantastic deal. I mean, on, on the marketing and business side, with LVMH, with Yahoo!, uh, with big companies, but then we had a crisis internet. I sold some shares to Yahoo for a lot of money, a huge amount of money that would have been very good for the team for the future. And then this deal has been broken by the, the COB, you know, the, uh, in, in, uh, because the, we had the crisis, the internet crisis becoming. Then I signed, I signed a deal with Al Walid just before the 11th of September. You know, to sell the team, to sell a big part of the team. So I was not very lucky at the of this period because all the constructors they were gone already in different teams. I was with Peugeot. I had to pay for the engine. I had to pay for the engine. Do you know how much money I paid the Ferrari engine in 2000? It was 28 million dollars, and I had to pay 31 million dollars the year after. I could not do it. I could not do it. So the people saying, you know, I was not a good uh, team owner or I, 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 I struggled. Yes, I struggled, but tell me what to do. When you, 
when you have to pay for the, you know, for, for because it's in France and you have to pay 30 million your engine, my my full budget, my maximum budget, I had 40 million euro. The maximum budget I had in one year, 40 million euro. And you cannot run the team with uh, less than 10 million. It's not possible. <laughs> wow. I can't tell you much more, but it's uh, very interesting because yeah. when people are complaining today about a few things, but... Uh, I was getting for the the commercial uh, the commercial money was a maximum 10 million dollar. Today the teams like me because we finished uh, one year we finished fifth would have would have received today maybe 60 80 you know so it's a different uh, different business but at the time uh, was not possible. It was just a frustrating time for you I suppose that that whole process It is frustrating I was uh, really happy when I when I stopped to be honest because yeah. uh, that's not a life when you know that uh, you can't uh, you can't get there when you know when you have a, you also have a lot of poly- when when Renault has decided to come back to Formula 1 it was also the end of the the support uh, it was uh, when, when you have no support you very difficult to fight you know like like else so uh, it's not a re- I don't regret any- anyway I've done it uh, it was a good uh, good experience uh, in my life uh, I've done many many different things with uh, uh, a lot of things that you don't know with a lot of success some less success it's part of the when you're an, an entrepreneur if you want to do things you have to accept that it yeah. cannot work all the time but it has not worked for reasons that I did not um, um thought before anticipate, anticipated yeah. for sure yeah. yeah very frustrating yeah, very frustrating exactly. yeah <laughs> it's the word yeah. well Alain, it's been such a pleasure okay. to speak to you i must just say one final thought is um nicola your son you have three children mm-hmm. yep. uh, his his baby your your grand you're a grandfather <laughs> yeah and twice a grandfather now twice yeah. a grandfather yeah, now yeah. but now his son is called kimmy kimmy yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so kimmy's yeah. a popular you know, it, it's funny because when uh, uh, maybe five years ago, he said, "When I when uh, if I have a boy one day, I will uh, call him Kimi," and everybody laughed because I said, "Yeah, boy, Kimi," <laughs> and then he he did not want to. Uh, I mean, we keep saying, "Oh, you sure about Kimi?" But I must say that Kimi is a nice boy. And, uh, We're talking about the baby now. We're talking about the baby, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's a good, uh, anyway, I mean, there's no, they always say there's no comparison, but may, maybe, I mean, I've, I've met, uh, I've met a couple um, uh, where there are two, two children and one was Ayrton and the other one was Alain. Can oh you imagine? So when you have seen that in your life, I mean, you can accept Kimi without any problem. <laughs> Alain, okay. what a great way to end it. Thank, Thank you so you. much for your time. No Such problem. a pleasure. Pleasure. I wonder if Alan's grandson, Kimmy, has started karting yet. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Timeless stories of F1 in the 80s and fascinating insight into the relationship between Alan and Ayrton Senna. A relationship that Alan didn't fully understand until after their crashes and clashes on track. We'll have more interviews with F1 legends in Season 5 of F1 Beyond the Grid, which starts on Wednesday, the 16th of March. And one last thing before we go, we've been nominated at the Sports Podcast Awards, and your vote can help us win. Go to sportspodcastawards.com, find the best motorsports category, and please vote for F1 Beyond the Grid. And thanks very much if you've already voted, and thanks for listening. 
F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios.